Hello, and welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. My name is Erin McCreary, and I'm a clinical assistant professor and infectious diseases clinical pharmacist at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine and UPMC. I am joined today by four awesome panelists to discuss beta-lactam therapeutic drug monitoring. Yes, you heard that right. We are going to be talking about checking plasma concentrations of penicillins, cephalosporins, and carbapenems. Some centers across the world are doing this routinely already, and some centers are just starting to explore this in certain patient populations, and I would say the vast majority haven't thought about this yet at all. So over the next hour, this fantastic crew is going to explain everything you need to know about what beta-lactam therapeutic drug monitoring, or TDM as we will likely refer to it throughout the rest of the podcast, how to get started with such a service, barriers to implementation and to monitoring in patients, and then, of course, the most important, how this impacts our clinical outcomes for our patients. So our first panelist is Dr. Veena Venegopalan, a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Pharmacotherapy and Translational Research at the University of Florida College of Pharmacy. Vina is an infectious diseases clinical pharmacy at UF Health Shands Hospital and has been utilizing beta-lactam therapeutic drug monitoring in her clinical practice since 2016, so almost five years of experience with this, which is phenomenal. Vina works with an amazing team of pharmacokinetic, or PK, experts like Dr. Chuck Peliquin and Dr. Ken Klinker, who are pioneers in this field and have really blazed the way for beta-lactam therapeutic drug monitoring in the United States. Vina, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Erin. Thanks for that introduction. I'm very excited to be part of this discussion. We are very excited to have you. You guys have done some awesome work that you're going to get a chance to talk about later. So thanks again for your time. Our next panelist is Dr. Joseph Cuddy, who is the Associate Director of the Clinical and Economic Studies at the Center for Anti-Infective Research and Development at Hartford Hospital. You may have heard of Hartford Hospital before. They do have a dosing nomogram. And so Joe is extremely well-versed in pharmacokinetics, pharmacodynamics, and teaching us how best to use antibiotics for our patients. Joe also served as the SIDP president from 2013 to 2014 and currently directs a fellowship up in Hartford. So after this podcast is over, I'm pretty sure everyone is going to want to go and be his fellow. Joe, thank you for joining us. Good morning, Aaron. Thank you for having me. Our next panelist is Dr. Mark Sheets, professor and director of Pharmacometrics Center of Excellence at Midwestern University in Chicago. You may have previously heard Dr. Sheets discussing therapeutic drug monitoring with regard to a different antibiotic, vancomycin, but we aren't going to get into that debate today, although he does it pretty well if you have a chance to check out some of his other conference talks. Other than the fact that he is unfortunately a Cleveland Browns fan, Dr. Sheets is pretty phenomenal in all of the things that he does. And actually, you can also go be his fellow. So Mark, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much, Dr. McCreary. It's an honor to be here, um, even if I'm going to be interviewed by a Steelers fan. Uh, you know, precision dosing. This is the year it's going to be the tipping point, and that's what we say every year for the Browns. So go Browns. Thank you, Mark, for joining us. And then last but not least, our final panelist is Dr. Jason Roberts. Dr. Roberts is an intensive care pharmacist at the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital, and he's also the NHMRC practitioner fellow at the University of Queensland. Jason, I, can I be your fellow? Like, do you guys have a training program? 
Well, we give uh, long-term jobs to people. Actually, we don't just train them for one or two years. We uh, we lock them in. So if you're good enough, we'll keep you. But it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I'm obviously from Australia, and uh, so I hope that you can all understand this quirky accent that I've got, and I'll do my best to Americanize it. I've watched enough Simpsons, Family Guy, and uh, other American TV shows to hopefully get by. And we're all over here trying to mimic your accent because it's it's wonderful. So thanks for joining us. Your team does just phenomenal work that I am really excited for you to share. Uh, you recently, actually, there were therapeutic drug monitoring recommendations put out, and Dr. Robert serves as the senior author on those. So a lot of wisdom in this Zoom call, and we are excited to dive in. And so with that, let's start with laying the foundation for what pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics is exactly why it's important for our patients and the difference between those two things, but also, you know, how they work together and why they're so important when we talk therapeutic drug monitoring. So Jason, do you mind kicking us off with that? Yeah, sure. So PKPD is really a fundamental tenet of pharmacology, which of course helps uh, instruct us on how we should be best using a particular drug. And so PKPD is the foundation of, of dosing regimens for, for, for drugs generally. In the context of antimicrobials, uh, PKPD is different to other drugs whereby the main action of an antibiotic, of course, is on a pathogen, be it a bacteria, uh, a, a fungus or a virus or whatever it may be. And so there's some slight differences in the definitions which people may apply to PKPD in that context. But PK or pharmacokinetics, of course, really is the relationship between a, a dose of drug that's administered and the concentrations that are observed in the body. And so often it's described as what the body does to the drug. Whereas pharmacodynamics is the relationship between a particular concentration or, or exposure of drug and the effect that it has on what it's acting on. So this is where uh, antimicrobials uh, or anti-infectives are a little bit different to other drugs, whereby it's the effect that it has on the bacteria, its ability to kill or inhibit the, uh, the growth of, of bacteria. Sometimes it's described in the context of uh, clinical efficacy as well, whereby, of course, that relates to the, the patient. So pharmacodynamics is also described in terms of what the, the drug does to the body, which is, in this case, drug does to the bacteria as well. So PKPD is that interrelationship between the dose of drug that's given and it's the effects that it has uh, with concentration or exposure being that really key intermediary, which of course forms the foundation for why TDM may be a very important mechanism to optimise the doses that are chosen for individual patients. Awesome. Thank you. So TDM, therapeutic drug monitoring, as you just alluded to. Vina, can you take us a little bit further with that and give us, you know, what, what does that mean when we say therapeutic drug monitoring at its core? What's the definition of that? And what are the patient populations that we would start to think about performing therapeutic drug monitoring in considering, you know, the definitions of pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics that we just heard? So the basic definition of TDM is measurement of a drug concentration either at a designated time or within a designated time frame. Historically, because beta-lactams have been considered to be so safe and have a broad therapeutic window, TDM was really not routinely performed. However, now with greater focus on precision dosing and personalized medicine, 
I think it's no longer justifiable to say that we can continue to dose beta-lactams the way we always have using standard package insert dosing. So the first role of TDM with respect to beta-lactams is helping us define that somewhat elusive therapeutic window. So Aaron Barreto and Mark Sheets on this call recently published a, a nice review addressing what they refer to the, as the floor and ceiling for beta-lactams. Nice comprehensive review of the evidence defining the beta-lactam therapeutic window in critical illness. The second role of TDM is to optimize the PKPD of beta-lactams. We now know through a lot of extensive research, primarily done by many of the co-presenters on this podcast today, that um, beta-lactam PKPD optimization through TDM produces a number of positive patient outcomes, such as greater clinical and microbiological success. So to give you an analogy, trying to optimize PKPD without TDM is like hitting a target on a tree with a shotgun. I think it's safe to say you'll hit your target, but you might take the tree down too. So that's the definition of TDM. And in my opinion, the role of it in clinical practice for beta-lactams. And so in terms of ideal candidates for beta-lactam TDM, given what we know about PK variability, particularly in critically ill patients, I think our ICU patients should probably be prioritized for TDM. There are other patients who would benefit from TDM because of the risk of underexposure or subtherapeutic concentrations. These include those with augmented renal clearance, obese individuals, patients with bacterial isolates that have elevated MICs. Our institutional TDM, beta-lactam TDM policy highlights some of these high-risk groups to help our pharmacists and providers with patient selection. Now, we don't mandate beta-lactam TDM in any patient population, but we highly recommend it. And the reason I make this distinction is because I often get calls asking if a specific patient is a good candidate for TDM. And my response to that generally is if you're asking about beta-lactam TDM, then it's most likely indicated. So conversely, you know, you asked if there are bad candidates for TDM. I'd like to rephrase that and say that there may be some patients where it's less useful. So if you expect antibiotics to be de-escalated or streamlined or even discontinued soon, it might be less useful to check levels in those instances because concentrations may not return in a timely manner for you to make any dosage adjustments that are meaningful. I like that. I appreciate that. Precision of language is just as important as precision of dosing. So there's never a bad patient for therapeutic drug monitoring, but perhaps which patients, is it the most worthwhile or the biggest bang for our buck when we're thinking about resources to do this? And we're going to talk a lot about resources later. So thanks for that overview, because I think for a lot of our listeners and a lot of us in clinical practice, we think of therapeutic drug monitoring as a safety mechanism first, which is probably appropriate. Um, drugs like aminoglycosides, we monitor for safety. Dr and then drugs like voriconazole, we monitor because it's so known how variable different patients will have different levels and how you know altered pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics can be in voriconazole for certain patients. What I think is not appreciated widely, but is becoming more and more appreciated is how deranged, I'm going to use a word Dr. Roberts taught me in, in hearing his presentations, how deranged pharmacokinetics can be in our critically ill patients for beta-lactams. And so what I really want the audience to appreciate today is how important TDM is for beta-lactams for the efficacy component, which I don't think we think of first and foremost. I also think we're appreciating that certain beta-lactams have more safety concerns than others. I know Dr. Sheets has done a lot of work with cefepime in particular that he might talk about a little later. 
So knowing that the variability in our patients can be tremendous for beta-lactams and knowing that we need to achieve this certain target for efficacy as we think about dosing these to optimize our patients' outcomes, I think we have to talk about targets first, and then we'll talk about everything else. So let's dive into that a little bit. And Joe, I want you to kick us off here. If I am measuring a beta-lactam level in my patient, what am I trying to achieve? What are the targets and what are the data to support those targets? Well, that's really the million dollar question, right? I mean, why I don't ask easy questions. Yeah. How, how long do we have? You know, I like to think why, why bother doing TDM if you don't know what you're, what you're shooting for. So we really have to be in agreement with, with what that, that is. So I, I like to think about it as it's not a concentration, So while we're for every other drug that TDM is quite standard for, um, we shoot for a concentration, a therapeutic concentration or range, perhaps to prevent toxicity uh, with aminoglycosides or vancomycin. But in the case of the beta-lactams, it's exposure that's important. And it's not a single concentration. And that's because beta-lactams are very unique in the way they kill bacteria. They're time-dependent killers. So it's about maintaining concentrations above the MIC of the organism for a a defined period of time. So so what is that target? Well, there's a couple of of, uh, areas that we have to look to. The first would be preclinical research. And preclinical includes uh, in vitro models, uh, in vivo murine pneumonia models, and thigh infection models, which help us uh, quantitatively determine how much drug and what exposure of that drug is necessary to reduce bacterial burden. And in many of those studies, you know, the classic endpoint is how much do we need to get one log of kill? And, and or even two logs of kill in, in certain models. And the reason those targets are often used is because once you get one log or two logs of kill, that gets you to a bacterial burden of around 10 to the fourth. And after that, our body's immune systems actually take over and do most of the bacterial killing. And that's why those endpoints, I think, you know, a, a, we often get the question, well, why not just completely eradicate the organism and use an exposure that completely gets it to zero? Uh, well, that's nearly impossible, at least in the time spans that we do these studies and measure them. But it's also unlikely to be necessary for the majority of our patients, because even though they may have deranged or dysfunctional immune systems, their immune systems are present and, and can take over. So let's say one log kill is the, is the endpoint that we're, we're shooting for based on these preclinical studies. That exposure for most beta-lactams is generally in the range of about 40 to 70% time above the MIC. And we're talking free drug concentrations. You don't need to be 100% time above the MIC. You don't need to have concentrations that are fourfold greater than the MIC for the entire duration. You essentially plateau out your killing effect for for nearly every single beta-lactam. And there are some exceptions. Cefiterocol in its uh, PKPD preclinical work was more like 80 to 90% time above the MIC. But but again, the majority of the beta-lactams, somewhere in the range of 40 to 70% time above the MIC based on preclinical data. Now for older antibiotics, when we didn't have those preclinical data, uh, the dosing regimens were a bit 
arbitrary on how they were selected. And, and so therefore, when you're dealing with antibiotics that we've used for the last 30 to 40 years, I think there's a tremendous opportunity to improve and optimize the dosing regimens. And we certainly have seen that with drugs like Piperacil and Tazobactam, as well as the carbapenems, which we're all giving as prolonged infusions now. So both the lack of preclinical data to, de to design optimized dosing regimens, in addition to the fact that 30 years later, MICs have changed. And these organisms have much higher MICs than they did a few decades ago. So, so we need to do clever things to optimize PKPD. But for newer antibiotics, the preclinical work is a huge part of developing a dosing regimen. And that's why you'll see most of these drugs do very well in their phase three clinical trials. And I like to think the skin studies and the intra-abdominal infection studies are probably not as revealing as more like a pneumonia study. So for many of the antibiotics recently approved for hospital and ventilator associated bacterial pneumonia, where success rates were excellent, you, you'll be unable to find a PKPD relationship in those studies because the dose was correct right from the get-go uh, for the organisms targeted in those studies. So we base a lot of our, our at least preliminary dosing regimens on this preclinical PKPD. So the next avenue then is, well, our patients are different than mice and that's obvious. So the endpoints are different as well. And, and while we can't measure, or it's not as easy to measure bacterial burden reductions in patients, you know, the endpoint is success, failure, clinical microbiological eradication, or even mortality uh, if the infection is right. So, so there is a lot more data now being published on what the exposure endpoints and exposure thresholds are in actual patients. And there's two camps, and I'm excited to hear the opinions of others because I think we're going to get into it, as to what the exposure is based on the observational human data. So I'll first start by saying there are no randomized controlled trials that purposefully randomize patients to a high exposure versus a low exposure or i.e. a suboptimal exposure. That would be unethical and certainly not gonna be possible. So therefore, nearly every single study that we have out there is observational in nature. And so we have to take what we get. We take the patient, we take the exposure that they had, we line it up to the bacterial infection that they had, the MIC of that organism hopefully is available and, and then we can relate that exposure to an outcome. And there's a variety of statistical techniques that can be used to determine that, that threshold. But here's the two camps. There's a number of studies that generally agree and support the preclinical murine studies that for most beta-lactams, the target threshold is going to be between 50, 40 to 50 and 70% time above the MIC. And you maximize your clinical success, your micro success, or you save patients from dying. And then there's a couple of studies as well that also point out that we need higher exposures. And so those higher exposures usually come in two flavors. It's either 100% time above the MIC or 100% free time above four times the MIC, which is a very, very high threshold and is more often quoted in the, the ICU. But in general, I think the quality of the evidence on the clinical side is 
still limited. It's by no means poor. We are getting there and we are using better techniques and we're getting better studies that that actually have true drug concentrations and drug exposure in patients linked up to the causative pathogen, linked up to an actual MIC, not a Vitec or Microscan derived MIC, which may not be quite as accurate. So we are getting better at understanding what those exposures are, but I don't quite think we're there yet. So, and that's the challenge is, is, you know, so we shoot for the exposures at Hartford, when we do TDM, we shoot for the exposures that were generally defined from the preclinical studies and are comfortable with that, knowing that there are observational studies that support those targets for the majority of the beta-lactams. So somewhere in the range of 50 to 70% free time above the MIC. But I'm excited to hear the, the opinions of others here on the call as to why they may shoot for higher. Yeah, Joe, I think you did a great job with that. This is, uh, this is Mark. Um, you know, I, I agree. And so I, I don't really find myself in either one of those camps. I, I like to call myself a translational scientist. So what that usually means is I'm trying to get two groups to shake hands. Well, at least that's what we did, you know, pre COVID, you know, now we touch feet or something like that. But I think there's probably something in between that really is a bridge between those two camps. And I agree with you. I think the preclinical data are very clear and your lab and Bill Craig's lab and you know many of these other labs um, have just done a phenomenal job in really understanding the efficacy of antibiotics in these systems that really do have true predictive capabilities. And so whenever anybody is really hard on the preclinical data and they say, you know, why do mice matter? The answer is because it really truly does link to patient outcomes. And it doesn't really matter what it is that you're studying, as long as it links to patient outcomes, I think it is something important to look at. And so, you know, why are these, where are these differences here? And if you look at a lot of the preclinical stuff, it's done by really these, you know, high functioning laboratories done by a single laboratory. Protein binding is measured by a single laboratory. Protein binding, getting free drug concentrations is exceptionally difficult for those of us that develop assays. And if you look at free drug concentrations across labs, they can be different based on the way that we actually perform uh, the way that we're getting those free drug concentrations. And then I think you outlined all the reasons why patients are just hard. You know, there are these differences in immune status that we just don't have that grade of calibrators on. You know, the, when we measure these things clinically, the best thing we can do is look at something like an Apache score, or something like that. But that, you know, that composite number really doesn't capture the patient as well as even the clinician can explain the patient to you. And so I really just view a lot of the preclinical data are probably right with the exposures. And then I just think the rest is perhaps just a fudge factor. So maybe, maybe we don't have the exact protein binding, right? Because most of the laboratories in the U.S. right now that are implementing beta-lactam TDM are not using free drug levels. And I think that's okay because there probably is some variability there. And there's definitely variability in the labs that measure these things. But I think you know, when we're going to start implementing these things, I think probably what I will propose is that we just add some fudge to your 50 to 60%, which I agree with. Nothing like the, the hedge answer of most of infectious diseases. I think we all have to be comfortable in that space. So I love that you said that. Jason, anything to add? Yeah. Like I, I, I agree that um, in terms of pure drug versus bug relationship, that 
I can't see any reason why you'd need to have more than that 40 to 70% time above MIC. I didn't know about the Cofidericol pharmacodynamic index, so that, that's interesting. But uh, I think that the reason that people have different approaches in different patient populations is something that I, I do agree with. And the reason I do is that I don't think that the drug distribution through the body is necessarily consistent. So, you know, it's not like the concentration you measure in the plasma is indicative of what you measure in, you know, sites of infection. So I think a really good example of that, which has been catered for in drug development and dosing regimen validation is that with keftolazantazobactam, whereby there's a different dose which is used for, you know, UTIs and complicated intra-abdominal infection versus what's used for ventilator-associated pneumonia and hospital-acquired pneumonia. And I think that that has been done really because, you know, it has uh, ELF penetration, which is about 50%. So you use a, a doubling of dose. Of course, you know, there's huge variability in terms of patient um, and interpatient differences in, in penetration. But, you know, roughly speaking, that seems to be an appropriate dose adjustment to do. And then unlike some of a couple of key drugs, maybe in the early 2000s, when the PAPVAP data came through for Keptolazantazobactam, it was shown to be a really good drug because it had catered for those drug distribution differences. Now, I don't necessarily know for, for certain that all drugs necessarily need that. I don't believe that that's the case in all patient populations, but I do think that there is a fundamental effect of pathophysiology in some patient populations, which dictate a different plasma concentration being required to ensure that the target site concentration is that agreed exposure of that 40 to 70% time by MIC. And I think that that's why a lot of people have uh, those different approaches. I will ask Joe the question about why one log as opposed to two log would be your target. And do you think that that would change based on the particular patient type? So I think that that's that other issue as well that people think about, you know, maybe if it's a critically ill patient, well, we've got to be more aggressive in treatment. And so let's, you know, I don't necessarily know whether or not they think about one log versus two log, but, you know, in, you know subconsciously they're thinking, well, I want to be more aggressive with my treatment for that reason that, you know, they are sick and they've probably got a higher burden infection. Maybe I should use a higher exposure to ensure that I get more rapid reduction in bacterial load. Yeah. So, so, you know, to use an analogy, I, I, I think it's kind of like, you know, using a hammer instead of a chisel. Um, so, you know, aiming for a higher exposure is the hammer. It's going to work. It's going to kill bacteria. It's going to work while, while you're using it though, there's the potential to do some damage. And, and the chisel is a lot more accurate. You're basically only giving what you need. So, so why one log versus two log? Well, you know, in, for most drugs, and we'll use ceftolazine as an example here, in the, in the murine pneumonia studies, the time above the MIC required for one log kill of ceftolazine happened to be about, it was about 40% time above the MIC was required. The time above the MIC required for two log kill was about 50% time above the MIC. So it's really not that different. And probably if you threw a couple more organisms in there, the numbers would change plus or minus 5% here or there. So, you know, the fact that, you know, I said 50 to 70%, 40 to 70%, and usually we would err on that high side for that fudge factor that Mark talked about, I think probably we are shooting for exposures that really are getting closer to one to two logs of kill. Now you brought up an 
excellent point about exposure at the site of infection. And we measure concentrations in plasma most often. And, and that's the easiest matrix to collect from patients. Um, you know, we certainly have done a tremendous amount of bronchoscopy studies in our ICU patients to understand how much gets there. And I, I think eventually, I hope we will get to the point where we'll be able to measure concentrations at the site of infection uh, more accurately and understand what that exposure is. But even in the murine studies, when we do a pneumonia model, we are translating the exposure in the plasma of a mouse to the CFU reductions in the lung. So it's a surrogate. So finding that 40 to 50% time above the MIC in plasma is predictive of one to two log kills in, in, the, uh, in the lung tissue is already correcting for the exposure at the site of infection. So the important question is, is the exposure in a mouse in the lungs the same as the exposure in a human in the lungs given that dosing regimen? And we certainly know that that may not be the case all the time. And ceftabiprol was a wonderful example of that, an unfortunate example of that, where the penetration into mouse was very different than the penetration into humans. Um, so more recently, um, we, we are bronching mice. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, a, it's not as, as sophisticated as it sounds, but we do try to understand the exposure that is achieved in a mouse uh, in mouse ELF when we're evaluating what that exposure requirement is for one or two logs uh, of kill. But yeah, when you get into humans, it becomes a lot more challenging. I also want to add, I think we throw the term penetration around a little too much. Um, penetration doesn't kill bacteria. It's drug exposure at the site of infection that kills bacteria. And beta-lactams are well known to not penetrate into ELF relative to you know, other types of antibiotics, fluoroquinolones, et cetera. However, time above the MIC actually can still be quite high, even though the drug only has 50% penetration into that matrix. So we have to understand that and keep that in mind. And you know, I have no problems shooting higher than the 50 to 70%. And very often when we do TDM and we're already being aggressive with our dosing regimens, we found we've hit those targets. We're already 100% time of the, above the MIC. I don't necessarily decrease the dose to get back to 70. I leave it there. If the patient is tolerating it and we're going on the right track, um, I'm, I'm comfortable with that. And certainly that accounts for some of that fudge factor. So one more quick follow-up question. Um, what is the variability in exposures in mice like relative to say critically ill patients, noting that that's that other reason which people may choose for everyone to have a higher dose to try and overcome that variability. So you're pushing more of those patients into what might be a therapeutic exposure. Yeah, it's huge. I would actually say the pharmacokinetics in mice are just as substantial uh, in variability as they are in, in patients. And, and keep in mind, we're using uh, inbred mice that are supposed to be the same and you could give them the exact same dose, all right? And, and you will have, have quite amount of variability. It's not uncommon for us to see 50% CVs in, in exposure in these mice. And that's generally what you see in more critically ill patients as well. So the, the exposures that we're 
we're classifying and quantifying in mice already have a lot of that variability accounted for. Um, but the whole purpose of TDM is to, is to get towards that individualized exposure and that precision medicine. And that's the whole reason for doing it. Let's take the variability out of the equation um, and try to get as precise as possible. Yeah, and Joe, you know, I'll agree with you. Um, so we do studies in rats, um, primarily looking at toxicity. And I was amazed. So one nice thing about a rat is that you can get slightly higher volumes than you get from a mouse. And so we can sample micro samples up to 16 times in some of these rats. And I absolutely agree. I, we regularly will see CV percents of 50 to 60%. And you know that can mean tenfold differences in variability. And again, these are just like you said, these are ex-bred rats. They are as close to genetically similar as, as you'll get without being essentially cloned. And we do see these really wide variabilities. And, and why is that? I mean, I, I think it's just because there's variability in everything that we do. We give these small doses. You know, you're giving 0.3 milliliters at a time sometimes. You're giving very, very small doses that are difficult to measure. The rats are slightly different. The mice are slightly different, just like our patients are slightly different. And I think that's one reason, as much as I really would like to move out of the in vivo systems and, and move into completely in silico type stuff and in vitro type stuff. In vivo models are still highly, highly predictive in a way that some of the in silico and in vivo uh, methodologies haven't been. And I know we haven't talked about hollow fiber yet, which I think is a great advancement for PKPD for efficacy. Um, so maybe we'll get into that a little bit later. A little, I Mark. While I have you, I want I want to ask each of you. I, you've all said a lot of really important things, and I want to tease into a few points that were mentioned. So, Mark, let's start with you on this concept of variability. I think actually a slide you showed at ID Week a couple of years ago really opened my eyes to this. I want you to kind of share that data and research with our audience. You modeled, I think, ten patients that all had the exact same creatinine clearance and modeled their cefepime exposures and saw just a tremendous variation in their peaks and troughs. Can you tell us a little bit about that work and, and how that ties into this concept of interpatient variability? And then also, while I have you, I want you to talk about something Joe mentioned with this, this aiming for four times the MIC. We talk about that a lot, and I want to learn where that number came from. Yeah, absolutely. So hopefully we'll, we'll get into that lore and hopefully I'll uh, attribute it correctly. So first, that presentation that I gave at, I think it was ID week a couple of years back, I was really thinking about how do I explain what we see mathematically to the clinicians that are true experts at looking at the patient and knowing what variability looks like for the patient that they're treating. You know, I can talk about CV percents and I can give the mathematic formula for what a CV percent is. And I can tell you that there's regularly tenfold variation in the patients that Jason's treating, but sometimes just seeing is believing. So what I did is um, I was fortunate to have some data from Ken Klinker and Chuck Peliquin and they had uh, cefepime. They had cefepime concentrations in critically ill patients, and we uh, we were fortunate to model that data, and we put a very nice model together. And we haven't published it yet, but uh, we we will. It's on the back burner, and we 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 do plan on publishing that. I can't seem to put out a paper a day like Jason Roberts. I I I have a writer's block that he he just doesn't seem to have, but uh, we will get around to publishing that. 
but put together a very nice model. And I don't think too many people will complain about the model, but really what I wanted to show were the simulations and the simulations are truly what we see in our patients after we have explained the variability with these models. And what I showed in that talk was just 10 patients being simulated. So, you know, when you see a simulation from Joe Cuddy, you'll see a, a 1,000, a 10,000 simulation, and he's not going to show you the richness of that data. He's going to distill it down into a single talking point for you and give you a probability of target attainment or something. And that's something that our clinicians don't regularly see, how much data is actually behind all of the simulations that he's done. And so what I did is I just pulled a random sample, 10 patients, to show how much variability there really is if we were to measure all of our critically ill patients' cefepime concentrations. And visually, it's quite stunning. And I think that's what our clinicians will start seeing when they start to monitor with therapeutic drug monitoring, that there is this wild variability that they haven't quite yet appreciated because they haven't had the chance to see it. Now, I've seen it mathematically and I know what it looks like mathematically. Um, we just haven't done a whole lot of this clinically yet. And I think once we start seeing it clinically and once you start seeing the tracings, they'll become very apparent. And then our clinicians will be able to do exactly what they know how to do. They know how to use first order equations. They know how to take care of patients and they know how to make sure that they are hitting the targets that they wanna hit. So that was the first part. Hopefully I covered that uh, well enough or um, I'm open to complaints. The second no, you part, did. I was, I was like, I think Vina drew those levels on those patients and sent them to you. So I just I, want, want her uh, to comment real quick. Is that what you see when you're doing, when you're getting levels back in your patients, just these crazy variations in levels? Absolutely. I see significant variability in concentrations, particularly in our CF burn and trauma patients, which makes sense. These are younger patients with hypermetabolic conditions and augmented clearance. So you expect to see PK variability. On the other hand, there are some patients where we see variability when we're not expecting it. This just highlights that relying on a serum creatinine as a surrogate for renal function and to drive dosing decisions is not always appropriate. Now, this PK variability ultimately results in dose escalation. We'll talk about some of the safety concerns with escalating doses, particularly when we're trying to achieve some of those higher PKPD targets. Yeah, it's not lost on me that I asked what the target was and we had a 15 minute discussion without really getting a concrete answer. So I think that just shows how important this topic is. So thank you for that. So Mark, Vina just mentioned aggressive dosing. I'm gonna come back to that. And Jason, I'm actually coming to you for that. So get ready over there. But Mark, talk about where this four times the MIC target came from first. Sure, so I think it came from a Vincent Tam publication that uh, happened in the early 2000s. I think that's probably where it's attributed. Now, prior to this, there were studies in you know, the 70s and 80s that showed in vitro that you know, perhaps you could get a little bit more killing by going several times over the MIC for a couple of the different beta-lactams. But for what would now be considered to be a relatively small number of patients, I think it was less than 40 patients or something like that, Vincent was able to show that uh, getting a higher concentration above the MIC was associated with, with better outcomes. And I think that's um, where 
a lot of this discussion started. And then I'm sure Jason later will be talking about his many trials, Dolly, Bling, Bliss. They all sound like wonderful drinks that I'd love to have, um, but um, they're, they're also wonderful trials. So we'll hear about those in a little bit, but I'm pretty sure that's where it originated from and people have been following up on it since. And to add to that, Mark, you're, you're, I would have answered the same way. I, I believe that other than some of the early Bill Craig stuff in the time kill experiments, where once you reach uh, fourfold above the MIC, beta-lactams stop becoming concentration-dependent killers, and that's when they become time-dependent. Um, I, I think you know those two numbers kind of go hand in hand. One of the things about Vincent's paper, which was an excellent observational study, certainly opening our eyes to, to the to the use of, of classification and regression tree analysis or CART analysis, which is what was used in that study to define that that PD threshold. You know, we've we've used CART. I know I know most of us on here have used CART as a statistical tool. And um, it, it's, it's a very powerful tool, but it's not subject to, uh, it, it's not excluded from, from many limitations of what the raw data are. So if all of your patients have very high exposures in your pool, in the 40 patients, and if they all have very high exposures, CART is still going to split your data as to what it thinks is most predictive. Um, so the, the balance of patients having low exposures and high exposures and having a robust exposure profile is perhaps more important to the outcome of the study than the actual you know techniques used to derive it and and i believe the challenge with that study was was that there just weren't that many patients with low exposures and because of that and we've seen this in our own work as well it's really hard to find a percent time above the mic that's less than 100 if you don't have that many patients down there. So we just need bigger studies with a more robust range of exposures um, to really understand, is it truly having a C-min that's several fold higher than the MIC uh, or, or, or having low enough exposures in a large cohort of patients can actually reveal that you know, maybe we don't need that high. So we just have to be super diligent about understanding, um, you know, the, the tools and their limitations. And I think that in part is why that fourfold times the MIC kind of came out of that paper. A paper, an in vitro model paper from Johan Luton uh, looking at keftazidine versus pseudomonas comparing intermittent dosing versus continuous infusion. I think it was 1995. Uh, maybe Journal of Antimicrobial Chemotherapy. And uh, what it showed is that fourfold, four times the MIC with continuous infusion was associated with a greater decrease in bacterial load versus standard 60% uh, time by the MIC, I think it was, that they were uh, they achieved with the intermittent dosing. Now, the, the quantification of the difference is quite, quite important. Uh, it was actually quite a, a high change that resulted in uh, log 10 CFU, I think it was 2.2 uh, at 24 hours for the intermittent dosing and 2.8 for the uh, continuous infusion. So that shows that in that context, in that really, um, that study, which was very controlled, that, you know, there is a, a slight difference, but it's not a huge difference at all. You know, there are other 
um, in vitro studies which have shown that you know you do get a ceiling effect as well at four times MIC. But I think that paper was quite interesting because it showed that there is a difference, but it's actually not real. It's not even a log uh, difference in killing that you get with those different exposures. So I think that's um, it's important to recognize too. Yeah, thank you. That's very interesting. So Joe earlier mentioned something about we can't, it would be unethical to randomize patients to a suboptimal exposure, which of course it would. But I want, Jason, if you could, I want to ask a question about, let's take miropenem. So the package insert dosing of miropenem is one gram every eight hours over a 30 minute infusion. So, but we know with the advent of miropenem vapor bactam and other such antibiotics, we routinely safely give two QA over three hours, right? So, and, and Joe mentioned how newer antibiotics are coming to the market a little more robustly with more intensive studies. And we're even, as with Cefitericol, we're even now incorporating PK sampling and TDM perhaps into these trials. We're not dose adjusting based on it, but they are getting patient samples in these trials and publishing that subs- subsequently, which is extremely helpful for us. So let's, I want you to talk about miropenem then. If one Q8 versus two Q8, you know, what would you do in the absence of TDM? And is there should we be, should that be a trial? Like, is that what we should be studying to Joe's point to get these patients with maybe lower exposures and comparing them to higher exposures? Like, what are your thoughts on that? So my, I'm going to answer it firstly from a clinical perspective. And so, you know, I don't give everyone the same dose at all. You know, there'll be a lot of people obviously say that one gram Q8H is going to be fine. You know, that's likely to be an enterobacteriaceae. We know that it is very low MIC, a gram eight hourly, no problem. And there'll be other patients whereby, you know, they're at high risk of pseudomonas or it is a pseudomonas, and I'll think, no, let's push a little bit higher, uh, you know, because we have uh, burns patients, neurosurgical patients who just have, you know, completely different pharmacokinetics to other crumbly old medical patients which may be in the ward, uh, sorry, which have come from the ward into the ICU. And, you know, so our approach to dosing those patients is completely different. And so that's where I would have a little bit of an ethical dilemma myself in randomising someone who I've seen on countless occasions to have a very low exposure with standard dosing and such that we wouldn't use that as part of our standard practice. So I don't think I'd have equipoise to be randomising people to that. I think that that as an approach is you know, not less, you know, is, is not an unreasonable approach to be trying to get more data about this and get a better differentiation of exposure relative to MIC. But uh, I think that you might have a bit of trouble convincing some units to, to participate in such a study. So this is where I think that, um, you know, I think that there are different targets which are appropriate for different patients. And a lot of that does relate to penetration of the drug. And I say that, Joe, in the context of exposure at the site of infection. And I use that term in that context. Uh, but then also, you know, there's the doses that are required for that individual patient. And so, you know, we're, we're very, there's a lot of differences in doses that are used in our unit. And experientially, that's how we've uh, evolved as we've seen the kind of exposures we get now, you know, 12 years of B-lactam TDM that we've been performing, you know, over 4,000 patients worth of data we've got now. So we're so jealous of your prolific work. That's awesome. Um, Vina, you also have clinical experience and clinical data, and I want you to talk about that a little bit. There is a paper published out of your center recently in JAC called Early Therapeutic Monitoring of Beta-Lactams and Associated Therapy Outcomes in Critically Ill Patients. So this was legit taking your clinical practice and how you routinely measure concentrations and associating it with your patient outcomes. So can you tell us a little bit about what you did and what you found? 
Absolutely. So the, the lead author of this paper is Dr. Mohammed Al-Shire, and this, was, this research was part of his PhD work. This was a retrospective study. It was looking at beta-lactam TDM in our adult ICUs at UF Health Chance between 2016 and 2018. The aim of the, of the study was to determine whether achieving early beta-lactam PKPD targets in, in ICU patients, whether that was associated with positive clinical outcomes. The PKPD targets of interest were um, 100% time above MIC and 100% time four times above the MIC. There were six beta-lactam um, that, that we included um, with available TDM. Cefepime, meropenem, and piperacillin and tazobactam were the most common beta-lactams with available TDM and, and in that order. So to, to get to the results, I think the f- first and, and foremost, the, the first thing that was that was most evident in, in the results was the broad range of um, free minimum concentrations to MIC ratios that were produced by beta-lactams. And so this data just confirms the already... Um, largely published data from other trials showing the variability of beta-lactam concentrations in critically ill patients. Um, Of the roughly 295 samples that were obtained from about 200 patients, um, most patients achieved, as has been discussed here, time above MIC. So when we're looking at those individual antibiotics, 90% 90% of patients on Zepapim and Meribenum achieved time above MIC, and about 80% of those patients on Piperacillin-Tazobactam achieved time above MIC. We'll look at that higher PKPD target, um, 100% time, four times above the MIC, we see a drop-off. So about 73% of the Cefepime group and, and 81% of the Meribenum group um, achieved that target, and only 50% of the piperacillin-tazobactam group achieved that higher PKPD target. Of note, the median daily dose of, of uh, piperacillin-tazobactam was 13.5 grams, and the range was uh, 6.75 to 18 grams. So this reduced PKPD target attainment with piperacillin has also been seen and, and, and demonstrated in other studies, so this finding was really consistent with that. But coming to our clinical um, outcomes, in uh, the multi, multiple regression model, which was controlled for, uh, which controlled for time above um, MIC, delays in measuring beta-lactam concentration was associated with less clinical cure, longer ICU stay, and higher mortality. So what does this all mean? I think the results of the study was um, a real turning point for us in our practice. So by showing all these benefits with early TDM, we were able to convert our institutional beta-lactam TDM policy to what we refer to as a pharmacy and therapeutics approved uh, protocol. So what this means is that now at UF Health Chance, any pharmacist can order a beta-lactam concentration independently without a physician order or a verbal order. I've seen a similar process with vancomycin at other, other institutions. So this was a Huge success for us um, as an institution, as a stewardship program, and it really resulted from our ability to show our own data um, and um, you know the the impact that we can have on patient care by enabling our pharmacists to perform TDM and not just perform TDM but perform it early in the antibiotic course. 
So any pharmacist, not just an infectious diseases or a critical care trained pharmacist. Correct. Any pharmacist. We have developed a brief training module for them to view, just explaining beta-lactam TDM, some fundamental concepts and basic science, and um, certainly orienting our pharmacists to our institutional policy. But once they've viewed that, they can freely order a level. Um, as well as a serum creatinine that's missing from the patient's lab work. That's amazing. Congratulations to your group. This is legitimately my favorite thing ever to do is to, you know, ask a question, design it well, get your own data, and then use that to change practice, which is exactly what you guys did for the betterment of patients. So just congratulations to your group. It's, I think, a model all centers in the United States should really look toward as we look toward beta-lactam TDM becoming more routine in clinical practice. So kudos to you guys. I love that you decentralized stewardship, so to speak, and empowered all of your staff to take care of patients this way because everyone should since everyone uses antibiotics, quite frankly. Um, dare I ask what your protocol states as your targets to hit? Just to circle back. Oh, you put, totally put me on the spot here. I will it's a real say- life protocol. <laughs> we need to know. So our position on PKPD targets has evolved and somewhat shifted over the last few years. We now recommend targets based on a number of factors, such as the site of infection, the patient's clinical status, and whether or not this is empiric versus definitive therapy where the MIC for pathogen is known or available. So to give you an example, for low inoculum infections, such as UTIs or SSTIs, we recommend free concentrations greater than MIC of the pathogen for a percent time of each dosing interval, depending on the specific beta-lactam, versus for high inoculum infections such as bacteremia or pneumonia, the recommendation is to target free minimum concentration to MIC ratios of four. So for those high inoculum infections, we shoot for the higher PKPD target. So as you can see, the PKPD target that we recommend is tailored a little bit based on a number of both patient and clinical factors. Awesome. And then what guidance do you provide on finding the free concentration? Since I'm assuming you're measuring total drug levels, how do you guide people to calculate the free concentration? So that's correct. We do currently measure total beta-lactam concentrations and our beta-lactam policy has some literature supported um, estimates for protein binding. And so our pharmacists are directed to use those estimates to then calculate the estimated free or unbound uh, drug concentrations. Are you checking your patient's albumin zones or any patient specific adjustment? Good question. No, at this time, we, we don't. I think in individual cases, we, we take that into consideration when assessing um, a level and interpreting it. But um, routinely, we, we, we haven't really built albumin into our um, assessment factor or assessment of individual levels. Awesome. Thanks. I think that's like Mark said, we know there's some kind of fudge factor, right? Like that's going to be something to consider and something we can keep developing. Awesome. Okay. So cool. I'm really jealous. That's awesome. Okay. I think that brings us to the end of the content for this week. Thank you all so much. This has been a really amazing discussion and I can't wait to be back next week for part two of this topic. To all our Breakpoints listeners, yes, you heard it right. There's a bonus episode coming next week with a whole other hour on beta-lactam therapeutic drug monitoring. 
For now, thank you for listening to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. I have been your host, Erin McCreary, and our featured speakers have been Bina Vanagopalan, Mark Sheets, Joe Cuddy, and Jason Roberts. This episode was produced by Zara K. Escobar and Rachel Britt. It was edited by the fabulous and one and only Jillian Hayes. Our production team includes Kelly Cole and Anna Zhao. The executive producers of Breakpoints are Julie Ann Justo and Aaron McCreary. Our theme song was recorded by SIDP member Steve Smoke. You can subscribe to Breakpoints on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening and helping SIDP achieve our vision of safe and effective antimicrobials now and for the future.